our topic, the birth of Jesus, and we're going to be reading Luke 2, 1 to 20, and this is the incarnation. This is an extremely important topic, and we're going to look at it in quite detail, and then, of course, uh, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the, uh, the shepherds in the field. <clears throat> but I'll read 1 to 20. And it came to pass in the days that a decree, in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to, to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that, they were, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him, them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. <coughs> and so it was, when the angels had gone away with them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child, and all who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. The Seneth the reading, and we're just today we're going to look at uh, up to verse eight. Excuse me, uh, up to up to verse seven. We're going to look at one to seven. The biblical account of the birth of Jesus is crucial, for in the Incarnation we have the special birth, the birth of the Incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Every birth under normal circumstances is a wonderful thing, for a new soul has been brought into the world. But the birth of Jesus was far more special and unique, for it involved a great mysterious miracle. 1 Timothy 3.16, God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh, or the word for John, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That was the result in the salvation of the elect and the recovery of the whole created order from the fall. The blessings that this little infant would bring to mankind in the world are almost unfathomable. The biblical narrative is very simple and can be divided into four topics. 
four main topics. First, there is the explanation regarding the historical time of the birth and how it came about that Joseph and his pregnant wife ended up in Bethlehem, verses 1 to 6. Second, there is a simple statement about the birth of Mary's firstborn son and the humble circumstances of the birth, verse 7. Third, there is the angel's appearance and announcements to the shepherds, coupled with the appearance of a multitude of angels praising God. And these angels, by the way, are not up in heaven praising God. They appear with the angel on earth praising God. Verses 8 to 14. And then fourth, the narrative is completed by the shepherds' visit with Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus. Verses 15 to 20. Today we're just going to look at the first half of that. Uh, we're not going to look at the whole thing. So let's look first at the historical and biblical setting. In the first part of the narrative, the birth of Jesus is tied concretely to human history and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. In verses 1 and 2, the time indicators for these events are tied to the ruler of the empire of Rome and the governor over Syria and Judea. The one who was governor over Syria ruled not simply Syria, but also Judea. That's where his headquarters were, so he's called the governor of Syria. Caesar Augustus was born Gaius Octavius. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar, who ruled until 44 B.C., Octavian's mother, who was Atia, the daughter of Julia, Julius Caesar's sister. Julius Caesar had a high regard for Octavian when he was a child, and upon Julius' death, he named Octavian in his will as his son and as his heir. And he had the uh, authority to do that, even though he wasn't his real son. From that time on, Octavian changed his name to Gaius Julius Caesar. He was one of the triumphant set up to rule the Roman Empire in 43 BC. Okay, there were three. One of them was uh, Antony. After the rebellion of Antony and Cleopatra, which uh, was crushed by Octavian in 27 BC, there was a giant uh, battle at sea, and Antony and Cleopatra lost, and they both committed suicide. He was given the sole position of rule by the Senate. And given the title Augustus, which means majestic, or high, or revered. And from that time on, he was called Caesar Augustus. And of course, Augustus will become like a title. Caesar, of course, is a title that they all take. He ruled for 41 years, <clears throat> from 27 B.C. To, 40, uh, to 14 A.D. Historians regard his role as careful, wise, and intelligent. He was good at choosing generals who could win victories. His administration showed wisdom and tact in dealing with subjugated peoples. He respected local customs. He respected the local different religious groups, uh, as long as they did not cause problems with Roman rule. So he was a very, as Roman emperors go, he was one of the best. And he was a wise emperor. He was a great builder who was regarded as a benevolent ruler by the people, and his rule established a long period of peace in the Roman Empire called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. Now, this period of peace, coupled with the Roman road system that was largely established so that the, the soldiers could move quickly back and forth, but it was used for commerce. <clears throat> The spread of the gospel became much easier during the apostolic era. 
So the whole Western civilized world was ruled by one emperor. It was now the appointed time for the fourth kingdom of iron, Daniel 2.40, to fall by the stone cut without hands, Daniel 2.45. One like the Son of Man will conquer at the cross and empty tomb, and he will be given dominion and a kingdom that will never be conquered or destroyed, Daniel 7.13-14. to 14. And this is one of those, just one of those many, many prophecies that Jews who deny that Christ, that Jesus was the Christ, cannot overcome. The Messiah had to arise during the Roman Empire, the Fourth Empire. So it had to be Jesus. It cannot be someone in our future. And of course, the gospel rapidly spread throughout the whole Roman Empire. He issued a decree that is an, an imperial edict. And you can Acts seventeen seven. There's another one that a census be taken of the entire empire. The purpose of the census was generally to de to determine the level of taxation for that area, <clears throat> for that particular area. There were registrations at one's home village at regular time intervals. Now, according to historians, this order went out around 8 B.C., but it took a good deal of time before it was applied to the area of Bethlehem. Given the date of Jesus' birth being around four, uh, 5 or 4 B.C., and I'll explain why in a minute, we must postulate that there were, was a delay or postponement in carrying out the census, or one could conclude that, there were, uh, that these censuses were bureaucratic affairs that took years to complete. A proposal that makes a lot of sense is that Herod deliberately procrastinated and delayed carrying out the decree because it knew that it would be very unpopular with the Jews. Because it was a it was a census for taxes. You know, in the United States, we have censuses to determine you know different uh, voting and things like that. But this was strictly for taxes. <clears throat> He knew it would be very unpopular with the Jews. The zealots who were alive at that time preached that one should not pay taxes to Caesar, a heathen ruler. Due to the situation that Roman authorities, uh, the Roman authorities gave Herod time to prepare the Jews for the census. So the census was finally carried out in Bethlehem around 5 or 4 B.C. And it is important to note that Scripture is inspired by God and cannot err in any way. Moreover, Luke was, a, Luke was a very careful, unimpeachable historian under the direct influence of the Holy Spirit. So the events in Scripture happened exactly as they were recorded therein. Now, the reason we say 5, five or 4 B.C. is because Herod dies in the spring of 4 B.C., uh, Herod the Great. And uh, Jesus had to be born before he died. He's the one who sends the soldiers to kill the infants. <clears throat> so Jesus had to be born either in you know, generally 5 or 4 B.C. is the date chosen. In any case, in God's providential ordering of events, Augustus Caesar's order was used by the Lord to make sure that prophecy was fulfilled perfectly. The Messiah had to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, 
though you are little among the thousands of Judah. Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So the one who is God of Almighty God, the Messiah, has to be born in Bethlehem. The word Ephratah is simply what the city was called before it was called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. The time of Satan's dominion was coming to an end. The rulers and priests of the heathen world had been weighed in the balances by God and soon would be cast out like their father the devil. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, and Rome had all followed idolatry and darkness. 1 Corinthians 1.21, the world, through its wisdom, did not know God. So God, in his wisdom, sent his own son to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, and set man free from the power of darkness. So this is quite an important event. Notwithstanding the mighty conquerors and poets and historians and architects and philosophers, the kingdoms of the world were full of idolatry and darkness. It was indeed due time for God to interpose from heaven and send down an almighty Savior. It was due time for Christ to be born. Romans 5, verse 6. Now the governor of Syria at that time was Quirinius. He was a ruler of the imperial province of Syria, which extended all the way uh, down to Egypt. These men were known as legates, or prefects, or procurators. Quirinius, in the Greek it's Serenius, which is the Greek form of the Roman name. His full name was Publius Sulpicius Quirinius, was twice the governor of Syria. With brief interruptions, Quirinius functioned as the military governor from 12 BC to 16 AD. There's a period in there when he wasn't the governor, and liberals and modernists make much of that and said, well, he couldn't have been the governor, but he was the governor. Since Herod the Great died in 4 BC, and we know that Jesus was born before Herod died, our Lord had to be born no later than 4 BC. Shortly before his death in the spring of 4 BC, the Magi from the east had come to Judea to worship the newborn king of the Jews. Well, let's look now at the birth of Jesus. In verses 3 to 7, we have a description of Joseph and Mary's journey to Bethlehem (coughs) due to the census and the birth of the Savior. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, but in Galilee, but their ancestral home was Bethlehem. Joseph descended from David, and Luke tells us later that, Luke will tell us that Mary is descended from David as well. They both were descended from David. So there's no question about Jesus being qualified by prophecy to be the Messiah. Nazareth was a, uh, a very obscure town. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, but occurs first in Matthew 2.23. It is situated among small hills which constitute the south ridges of Lebanon, just before they sink down into the plain of Eshtrelon. Among those hills is a valley which runs in a wavy line, uh, nearly east and west, about a mile long, on average a quarter of a mile broad, 
and at certain points enlarges itself considerably so as to be form a sort of basin. So think of a valley. In this basin, or enclosure, along the lower edge, the hillside, lies the quaint, secluded village from which Joseph and Mary went up, in which the Savior of men spent the greater part of his earthly existence. He was trained by his father as a carpenter. His father was a lowly carpenter. He was not a wealthy man. He could be considered even poor, especially at this early stage. <clears throat> its name is supposed to come from a derived name of the Hebrew word Netzer, signifying a branch or rather a sprout or germ, the place being so-called from its insignificance. Its fame has solely risen from the residence of the Savior there. Indeed, the place is a fit emblem of Christ. Beginning with the germ, it has risen to a tree in fame and filled the entire earth. So that's Nazareth. Now, since Bethlehem is in the hill country, 2,564 feet above sea level, and Nazareth is at a lower elevation, 1,830 feet above sea level, their travel is described as a going up, even though they were traveling south. And the Bible is consistent in the Old and New Testament. Whenever people travel from a lower elevation to a higher elevation, it says they're going up. When they're going from a higher elevation to a lower elevation, it says they're going down. That's just the way they describe things. We tend to describe things as people going up north or going down south. Well, they go by elevation. The trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was around 85 to 90 miles if one traveled through Samaria. Most Jews, however, avoided going through Samaria, the vast majority, so their trip would have probably been even longer. Since Mary was well into her pregnancy, we can infer that she probably traveled on a donkey with Joseph on foot. <clears throat> their journey would take at least three days, with her being pregnant maybe even four or five. The city of Bethlehem is significant for a number of reasons. First, it is identified as the city of David because it is the city of David's origin. 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 20, verse 6, 2 Kings 9.25, 12.22. Joseph is a descendant from the house of David, and the Messiah must be a descendant of the house of David. The Bible is very clear about that. 1 Kings 2.4 and 45, 1 Kings 8.25 and 26, 11.13 and 36, 15.4, 2 Kings 8.19, etc. And Isaiah 9.6-7 is especially clear. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And if you read First and Second Kings, there's a lot of wicked kings that ruled over Judah. And these were descendants of David. And God will bring judgment on Judah, but it'll say things like, well, for the sake of my promise to David, uh, he won't exterminate the kingdom like he did the north. And so he keeps it going. For the sake of the Messiah must come from the house of David. And that was a promise given to David. Justin Martyr and Tertullian, two of the earliest Christian apologists, appealed to these roles or records of the Roman Empire for proof that Jesus was the descendant of the house of David. 
we should note that such genealogical records, very detailed, probably even more detailed than the Roman ones, were kept at the temple complex in Jerusalem. These records were all destroyed in AD 70 when the Romans burned the temple and burned all the buildings and cast stone, one stone down upon another. So if wanted to, uh, wanted to have proof of who was a de descendant of David and proof of who was qualified to be the Messiah, that ended in AD 70. So we take that fact, we take that with the fact that this, the Messiah, Daniel's crystal clear, the Messiah had to arise in the period of the Roman Empire, the Fourth Empire. And we take that with the fact that the genealogical records were destroyed in AD 70, the records from Rome were lost forever when Rome fell in the 5th century, the latter half of the 5th century. So Jesus fulfills all the requirements, and Jesus has the proof. Nobody else does. And as if to remove any doubt, the Gospel of Luke makes it clear that Mary also is the house of David. Luke one thirty two and 69. She was apparently required to be present and registered as well. If her presence was not required, it is likely that her state of pregnancy caused Joseph to keep her close to him in case the time came. It is possible that the young couple knew about the prophecy of Micah 5.2 and wanted to make sure that Mary was in the right town at the right moment. In any case, we see here how God providentially orders all things so the scriptures will be fulfilled perfectly. And so his plan of redemption will come to pass with divine certainty. Man proposes, God sovereignly disposes. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever, wherever he wishes. And that's very comforting. The world looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket. Things are crazy. Our president's, you know, a babbling old lunatic. Uh, but God's in control, and we can trust in God, and we can take comfort in that. Second, Bethlehem signified the house or town of bread. It is an appropriate name for the Savior to be born who is called the bread of life, John six thirty-two to 41. He is the bread that came down out of heaven. God's providence not only fulfills all the prophecies regarding Christ perfectly, but even the biblical symbolism points us to Jesus. Now Mary is described as Joseph, Joseph's betrothed wife who was with child. This description is significant and unusual. For Joseph had already taken Mary as his wife, after the angel appeared to him in a dream and told him that the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, Matthew 1.20. In other words, they had, a, they had a formal marriage ceremony with witnesses. They weren't simply a betrothed couple anymore. They actually went through the process of the marriage ceremony, which had to have witnesses, generally family members. They were living together and traveled together as a married couple in the, in the account. The reason that the word betrothed is still used, even though they were married, is that they had had no sexual union prior to the birth of Jesus. They were legally married in God's sight and formed a family unit, unit but the marriage <coughs> had not yet been consummated. Isaiah 7.14 was fulfilled. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And that prophecy is referred to, uh, see Matthew one twenty three, Luke one twenty seven. Now, the account of Jesus' birth is very brief and very simple. It occurred as her and her husband were waiting in Bethlehem for their registration. Verse 6, the days were completed for her to be delivered. Now, while this expression probably only means that they were in Bethlehem for some days before the birth occurred, the expression the days were completed, or for, and that could be translated, or fulfilled, has prophetic and theological overtones. As Paul so eloquently says, Galatians 4, 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The time had come in history, predetermined by God, for the Messiah to come and be born, to come down from heaven into the world, the Son of God. The humble nature of Jesus' birth is recorded in verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary brought forth Jesus. He, uh, he received his human nature through her, but since he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was born without original sin. Now, given this fact, in the reality of his achieving a perfect redemption, our Lord is called the last Adam in 1 Corinthians 15.45. He is the federal head of the elect, the new redeemed humanity, Romans 5.17-20. Mary presented the baby to Joseph, but also, in a sense, to the whole world. Here is the Christ, the Redeemer, the Son of the living God. He is called her firstborn son. And in Greek, the statement is emphatic. Her son, the firstborn one. It's emphasized in the Greek. As the firstborn, Jesus had a special status and privileges according to the Mosaic Law. Exodus 13.2, Numbers 3, 12-13, 18.15-16, Deuteronomy 21.15-17. Our Lord's, of course, to be a virgin, he had to be the firstborn. And, of course, to be the second Adam, it's appropriate that he's the second born. Our Lord's parents will follow the Mosaic Law and will present Jesus at the temple as a special, as special and holy to the Lord as the firstborn son in Luke 2.23. Christ had to be the first son, for Mary was a virgin, and the second or last Adam, as the second or last Adam, Jesus had to be the first of the new humanity. The fact that Jesus is her firstborn son also indicates that after the birth of the Redeemer, Mary had continued to bear children. The Gospels make it perfectly clear that Jesus had brothers. And not cousins, as the Roman Catholics say, brothers. Matthew 12, 46 and 47, Mark 3, 31 and 32, Luke 8, 19 and 20, John 2, 12, John 7, 3 and 5, and Acts 1, 14. And Jesus had sisters! Matthew 13, 56. The tradition found in the Roman Catholic Church, which is accepted in the Eastern Orthodox and is even was held by Calvin, 
and probably Luther. I, I didn't check on Luther. That Mary continued to remain a virgin her entire life is rooted in Neoplatonism, not the biblical record. Once the virgin birth of Jesus was accomplished, there was no reason for Mary to remain a virgin. In fact, if Mary had not fulfilled her marital duties to Joseph, her husband, she would not have been a good biblical wife. The purpose of getting married is not simply to bear children, it's to have sexual relations and, and take care of those needs. And those that's a responsibility, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8 to 9. If she had not fulfilled her duty after Jesus was born, if she refused to fulfill her duty, she would be regarded as it would be regarded as a form of abandonment, and it would be sinful. In the papal churches, the desire to exalt and worship Mary, the mother of Jesus, they unintentionally have presented her as a bad, sinful wife. She was a good wife. Jesus had many brothers, and he had sisters. Now, after the birth, Mary wrapped baby Jesus in a swaddling clothes. The practice of women in Judea at that time uh, was to wrap the newborn in strips of cloth. Not a blanket, but little strips of cloth. This was a mark of maternal care. <clears throat> Our Lord had a real human body that needed to be kept warm. And this practice, which was common in the Middle East at that time, was studiously attended to because it was believed that wrapping the tender frame of the newborn babe would help prevent any bodily distortions, especially with the legs. A very common practice. So they wrap up the newborn baby like a little mummy, basically, with little strips of cloth. And that was done by all the women in the Middle East. Now, once the Savior was carefully wrapped, he was placed in a manger. The baby Jesus wrapped in a swaddling clothes lying in a manger will be a sign to the shepherds. Verse 12, 212. Now, the word manger, fat name, refers to a either a feeding trough for animals, that is a food crib for livestock, the verb form of the word, patamai, means to eat. This would uh, mean that a wood feeding trough was cleaned out and used as a crib for the baby. The word can also be used to describe a stall for animals. The probable meaning here is a feeding trough, for Mary likely gave birth in a stall for animals. If she gave birth in a stall, she would then place the baby in something available for the baby to sleep. And you don't have to worry about him rolling out. And they could clean it up, they could put some hay on the bottom of it, and it would make a nice little convenient place for the baby to lie and take a nap. Now, the explanation for this is given that there was no room for them in the inn, verse 7. The word inn, Cataluma, there's a town in California called Cataluma, refers to a lodging place or a guest room. In those, <coughs> there were inns in those days where strangers could tie up their animals and go to sleep. They were usually two stories and people would lodge in the second story with, uh, with the residents or owners on the first floor and then there was place for animals. The guests were expected to provide their own blankets and pillows. If they had none, they would use the outer, they were outer garment as a covering. The animals would be stable on the ground floor in stalls. If the second floor was full due to the registration, Joseph and Mary would stay in one of the animal stalls. 
and this would also provide privacy for giving birth. They're obviously not going to give birth in a room full of people. It wasn't like a hotel where you have your own separate room. It was a big room where a bunch of people just went to sleep. It's more like a hostel, what we know as a hostel, than it is a hotel. If the word in refers to a room in a private house, then they would have gone into a lean-to on the side of the house for the animals. A number of scholars favor, favor the translation stopping place over inn because of our modern connotation of an inn. These stopping places were more like a hostel than a modern inn. Under those circumstances, normally Joseph and Mary would try and find a place to stay with relatives, but all the extra space had already been taken. Remember, everybody who had originated from Bethlehem had to go to Bethlehem. So the Bethlehem's a small town even to this day. So the place would be really crowded. Consequently, the relatives put their guests in an adjoining shed where the asses were kept. There is absolutely no evidence for the tradition, that's very common, that Joseph and Mary retired to a cave. And you'll see pictures and little, little things, you know, the Christmas season uh, of them in a cave. Uh, that's a very common tradition. Um, I don't know where it comes from because the text makes it clear that they were not in a cave. Now, besides the providential fulfilling of prophecy and the other things significant in this account is the humble manner of Jesus' birth. Our Lord was not born in a palace or even a nice house, but was born in a strange place, a place for animals, not humans. He was born there due to the, a decree from a pagan ruler who had power over the promised land at that time due to, the, due to the Roman conquest of Greece. Instead of having kings tributaries to him, when he came into the world, he was himself a tributary. When he was first born of relatively poor parents who were not well known or of high honor in society. When he was born, he was not wrapped in a silk or fine linen, but with strips of cloth. And he was not placed in a beautiful handcrafted crib, but in a feeding trough of an animal. Almighty God, the word made flesh, was wrapped in a cheap cloth and set in a wooden box on some straw, a box designed for feeding of livestock. All of this was an aspect of his humiliation. Even though Jesus was fully God of very God, he made himself of no reputation. This is Philippians 2.7. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. <clears throat> he became poor that we might become rich in him. 2 Corinthians 8.9. So this exhibits the grace, mercy, and condensation of Christ. He did not come with royal majesty, with glory, with dignity, and exaltation. All those things that he deserved, he set aside and was born in a stall for animals and placed in a feeding trough. He came as a baby to relatively poor parents, the, some of the poorest of mankind, born among the filth of animals. He was the lowly of the lowliest. He chose this path of humiliation and suffering because of the love of his people. And he showed us by his example the contempt of earthly glory. Through his life of obedience, suffering, and his vicarious death on the cross, he obtained an eternal redemption for us. The world did not receive him. 
and he was rejected by his own people because of their unbelief and their worldly pride. They didn't want a humble Messiah. They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a conquering king. Now, the birth of Jesus was a crucial part of his voluntary humiliation. And there are two elements in the humiliation of Christ. So we're going to get into some theology, some application. The first involves the deliberate setting aside of the exhibition of his divine majesty. He did not appear as the sovereign ruler of the universe. And his infinite power was not exhibited, but kept hidden from the masses. And the vast majority of miracles that he did, he did through the anointing of the Holy Spirit he received at his baptism from John. Although there is the, the, the case where the woman touches his garment and power flowed from him directly. He assumed a human nature and he took upon himself the role of a suffering servant. And the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus emphasize this aspect of his humiliation. The second aspect of his humiliation consists of his becoming subject to the demands of the, and curse of the law as the second Adam. His entire life, he perfectly obeyed the law. He was subject to the infirmities of the fall and suffered rejection, injustice, and a shameful death. Even though he was the creator, Lord over the whole universe, and supreme lawgiver, he placed himself under the law in order to discharge its federal and penal obligations on behalf of the elect, his sheep, the church. He placed himself in a position where he paid the penalty for our sins. He endured the full curse of the law in our place, and he obeyed the moral law in exhaustive detail, meriting eternal glorified life on our behalf. Reformed theologians speak of five stages of Christ's humiliation. Lutherans have eight. The Reformed are better. Number one, incarnation. And remember, when he was incarnated, yes, he was without sin. But he took himself a human body that was liable to the effects of the fall and the suffering and death that could occur. So even though he was without sin, he still had the infirmities that came after the fall. And that's humiliation. Two, suffering. Three, death. Four, burial. Five, the state of death. Because of the work of the Savior in the Incarnation is a job undertaken by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, it is perhaps better or more specific for us to say the Word became flesh instead of God became a man. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said, John 6.38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. The pre-existent eternal Son of God assumed a true human nature. He took to himself real flesh and blood as well as a reasonable soul. <clears throat> that the infinite God, the Word, came into our world and our finite existence in order to save us is an amazing doctrine that is difficult to fully fathom. Yet it is at the very heart of biblical Christianity. The Jews wrecked it. Reject it. Atheists obviously reject it. Muslims reject it. The cults don't even accept it. They don't really believe in the atonement. The incarnation was necessary if God was to save sinful men while remaining fully just and righteous in the process. Now, 
The incarnation was caused by a supernatural conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary. The person of Jesus was conceived within the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without any means of man. Okay, Joseph had nothing to do with it. And this point is emphasized in Scripture. Matthew 1, 18-20, Luke 1, 34 and 35, Hebrews uh, 10, 5, and look at Galatians 4, 4. This fact is given to Mary by an angel as a reason that Jesus is to be called the Son of God in Luke 35. He's going to be conceived in you by the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore he is to be called the Son of God. Very interesting. The Holy Spirit was the efficient cause of the growth of the Son of God within Mary. Therefore theologians speak of his human nature, uh, of his human nature, but his person is the Son of God, the divine human mediator. The Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Jesus from the moment it came into being and kept it free from original sin or the pollution of sin. So Jesus was the lamb without spot or blemish in any conceivable manner. And the incarnation is viewed as an aspect of Jesus' humiliation, not simply because the Savior assumed a human nature, but because he assumed a human nature as it is after the fall, weakened and subject to suffering and death, even though he was free from the stain or pollution of sin. So he's unique. Normally, if you don't have any sin, actual or original, uh, you wouldn't be subject to pain. You wouldn't be subject to suffering and death. But Jesus was. He had to be in order to endure the cross. Now, the best doctrinal statement regarding the person of Christ in the Incarnation comes from the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. You can read the Dutch creeds and confessions. You can read the Westminster Standards. You can read all of them. And none have gone beyond this. This is, this is such a wonderful and exacting statement. Nobody has gone beyond it. It's, it's so wonderful. Council, and it'd be worth memorizing, 451 A.D. <clears throat> the council declares him to be, quote, uh, quote, to be acknowledged in two natures, that's human and divine, inconfusedly, that is, the two natures do not mix or alter each other to produce a third nature, unchangeably, that is, the two natures remain the same, indivisibly, inseparably, there are not two persons or personalities, but only one, Christ, the Son of God. The distinction of the natures being in no wise taken away from the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons. And that's, of course, against Nestorianism. You know, I'm not going to take the time to explain all this, but it's a beautiful statement. It's extremely exacting. And the statement is very carefully written to guard against the many heresies that had arisen regarding the person of Christ. God uses circumstances for the church to come up with excellent doctrinal statements to fight uh, the satanic arguments against what the Bible teaches. Cults almost always attack the person of Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. Those are the two main things they attack. And then, of course, the atonement. Therefore, an exceptionally precise definition of the person of Christ is wise and necessary. So, let's conclude here. Uh, the virgin birth... And the incarnation of Christ is essential to biblical Christianity. So if you have somebody denying the virgin birth, they're denying everything associated with biblical Christianity. Because you had to have a virgin birth to have someone born without sin to be a proper atonement for sin, etc. He had to be truly God. 
Jesus had to be a real man like us, except without sin, if he was to perfectly obey the law and die on the cross as a vicarious sacrifice on behalf of men. He also had to be fully God in order to offer a sacrifice of infinite value to the Father because he came to save millions of people from all over the world. The incarnation is the miracle of miracles. It is the beginning of Jesus' journey to Golgotha. Now there is a sense in which the incarnation is a mystery which defies a full explanation. And if I wanted to teach a theological class, we could spend hours talking about the details. But we must believe it and we must hold it dear in our hearts. For it was necessary to save man. This is the Son of God. This is Jesus, who came into the world to save sinners. So that's the birth of Christ. And I hope you profited from that. Next week we'll look at the angels, appearance of the shepherds. Uh, which you'll find extremely fascinating. First an angel appears, makes an announcement, then all the angels appear with the angel on earth. They're not up in the sky like you see in the pictures. They come down and it's amazing. But we'll look at that next week, Lord willing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the birth of your son, born of a Virgin Mary. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for his atoning work, his suffering. We thank you for his resurrection. We thank you for his rule at the right hand of you, the Father. We thank you for his sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts to regenerate our hearts and to cause us to love your law and to follow you. Help us, Lord, to be sanctified. Help us to follow Christ more faithfully. Help us to love your word. Help us to be faithful to your Son who endured great humiliation and suffering on our behalf. So help us to walk worthy of our calling in Christ. Let us, uh, in Jesus' name, amen.